the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook if you've heard of it. Been there. All the kids are there. <laughs> Actually, none of the kids are there. <laughs> There's all people my age. <laughs> That's right. And older. All mm-hmm. right. The, the Facebook address that you can find us is The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. Plus the show is podcasted, so if you uh, subscribe, like, review, that would help us a lot. You can also text us at 68683, and then in your message body before you type whatever thought or anecdote you have, just type CG for Common Good, and uh, we would love to interact with you there. By the way, speaking of our podcast, I met somebody yesterday who listens to us almost daily. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And uh, this person listens also listens to us at one and a half speed. No kidding. Yeah, I think it's a thing. I think we it's used to mock it. a thing. Like before we were like, what? People listen at one and a half speed? That's crazy. And then this person I met was like, oh, yeah, I listen to all my podcasts at one and a half speed. I was like, that's <laughs> clearly a thing. Did you ask him or her, are our jokes funnier at 1.5 <laughs> the speed? That... <laughs> that would be worth it if like, oh, this actually makes you guys uh, entertaining. So <laughs> thanks for that. Oh, funny. All right. So last night there was a, a pretty important basketball game. Game, there Ryan. was, and uh, I think that you have a really interesting angle on this. Why don't you fill us fill us in on some of the backstory before we dive into this as a topic? I, I will, and I, I actually thought about you last night, wondering if, like, with little kids, do you do you stay up for stuff, <laughs> whether it's a basketball game or a show you like? Oh, we stay up for stuff, just <laughs> unintentionally. <laughs> stay up, get up, whatever the whatever the up is, it's happening. But I do remember when our kids were that little age, and it was like people would be like, "Oh, it's the biggest thing tonight. Are you going to watch?" Me? Absolutely not. <laughs> There's, I'll be sleeping every moment not a I can chance get. If my kid is asleep, I am asleep. Right, so, right. Anyway, last night was a national championship game for the NCAA tournament. Uh, it was the University of Virginia against Texas Tech. And the game went to overtime. Really fun game to watch if you watched it. A lot of you out there do um, NCAA tournament pools. My, my family, by the way, a little side note, my family of five does an NCAA tournament pool every year. And this is the fourth year we've done it. So it's me and my wife, my son, and my two daughters. Oh, that's awesome. And so the first two years, my my oldest daughter won, having never watched a college basketball game in her life. <laughs> does she just let the computer generate the bracket no, for No, she her? does it, but she'll be like, well, I think that team. I think that. Really? The first year she did it, uh, we did it. So this is, you know, four years ago. Yeah. She did it that way. N- not joking. She hadn't watched a minute of college basketball. She didn't know a thing. She came in the top 5% nationwide. No kidding. She picked the national championship. That year it was Villanova, North Carolina. And I'm like, what? why do I even watch games? <laughs> you got to bring her to Vegas. It was crazy. <laughs> so she won the first two years. That's amazing. Then last year, my wife, who's 
uh, who's never watches any any games. She won. <laughs> and, like, by this point, my son and I are mad. Yeah, right. Because you guys are, I mean, you're passionate about this. Totally. We are, like, sports <laughs> fanatics, like, to a bad point. Uh, and then this year, it finally came down to my son and I, uh, and it all depended on Saturday night if Virginia beat Auburn. And if Auburn won, I won the pool. If Virginia won, he won the pool, and he won. So oh, I'm now on a four-year losing streak to three children and my wife. You, see, you, <laughs> you seem a little salty about it right now. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about that later, maybe. Before, before it was like kind of cute, like, oh, your family beats you. That's like, now it's like, are you kidding yeah, me? The, I'm getting a lot crazy. of thought. Maybe prayer into this. <laughs> Still nothing. I'm, I'm flipping coins. I'm doing lots. All this stuff. Anyway, one thing that I found really interesting through the tournament was the University of Virginia. If you're not a basketball fan, let me tell you their story a little bit. Uh, coached by a guy by the name of Tony Bennett, very committed believer. He's really an impressive coach and impressive person. But last year, they went into the NCAA tournament as the number one team in the country. Uh, and they got smoked Round one by a 16 seed, the yeah. University of Maryland in Baltimore County, one yeah, of these small right. schools. I mean, no number one seed had ever lost to a 16 seed. Ever? Ever. In wow. the history of the tournament. And they lost to him by 20 points. It wasn't close. It was they got killed. Jeez. And so all offseason, that's all they've heard. Literally, last year they were the number one team in the country. They lose to the 16 seed. And there were some people like, maybe they should fire the coach. Like, it was like that level. Oh, wow. So then they have an awesome season this year. They're a number one seed again. But all they've heard all season is about their failure of last year. Holy. You're a failure. You guys lost to a 16 seed. There's articles being written about how their style of play isn't good for the tournament. So they're going to lose again. Interestingly, in the first round this year, they were down double digits to a 16 seed. All these tweets are going around like, it's going to happen again. This is unreal. They come back. They win that game by double digits. They turn it around. Um, Then now they make kind of this magical run. They had two or three games this uh, tournament where they should have lost. And they made just a great comeback. Come out and they win last night in overtime. And it just got me thinking, like, you know, as pastors, we can over-spiritualize things. But let me (laughs) over-spiritualize a little bit here. Uh, What a great story uh, or a picture, if you will, of of redemption, of so many of us are, are often, we, we allow ourselves to be defined by our failures, Yeah, that, that you are, um, you're defined by your failures. And Virginia, these are mostly the same players who played on last year's team. These guys could have just kind of shut it down and been like, man, we are, we are the worst failures ever. We had a great season, but we lost right. like in a, in a historically catastrophic way. And they could have come in this year and just been like, man, we're no good like this and that. But instead they were like, no, we know we're good. And they, yep. they started the year again. They had a great year and now they made this magical run. And there's something really redemptive to me about a team that had the worst, literally the worst loss and collapse last year, the following year, winning the national championship and hoisting the trophy. I think there's something cool about that. And it's, and it's not just redemption. It's redemption in the face of ridicule, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think a lot of, I mean, we all experience failures big and small all the time, right? Yes. Anyone listening, they, I'm sure they're nodding their heads saying, yeah, I've totally experienced a failure. But to, like, be reminded of that failure is what makes the story kind of unique. But I think, and you've mentioned sort of the role of social media in this whole thing, yep. too. Like, if if we wanted to, we don't have to go that far to be reminded of, like the screw up that we are, yep, right? And yep. and hopefully we have, you know, communities and people that are like speaking life and purpose and identity into us. But I also think that not only is failure something that like, oh, we can overcome it. I think, and maybe this is true for you, sometimes failure is is actually the catalyst yes. for me to make significant changes 
that I needed to, and, and and not because my identity was at was at fault or was at uh, was being threatened, mm-hmm. but because my praxis, my my behavior was like, oh, you needed to fail in that regard, yeah, yep. because you actually really are missing the mark here, mm. and that like woke me up, that like knocked the dust off my eyes, like, hey, pay attention to this, and like that balancing act is so hard. How do we how do we embrace failure insofar as that it teaches us without allowing it to like challenge or rattle like the deepest core of our identity like yeah. how, how do you do that personally uh, you used an important word of identity and this is easier said than done and uh, it's amazing to me how often we come back to this but to know that i'm not defined by what i can accomplish or what i could do that in the end that coach or those players were not defined by that loss as painful as it was a lot of times we allow <clears throat> ourselves to be defined by what can i produce what do other people say of me rather yeah. than how god sees me um and like I said, that's easier said than done. Totally. But I think that is a huge building block. If if we get that right, that, you know, whether I'm the most successful uh, in my whatever my profession is, or I lose my job, yeah. or I'm kind of mediocre, whether I'm an A student or I'm a C student, like, yeah. you, you want to strive for to be the best at things, but it doesn't, that doesn't determine how God sees me. And ultimately, I can rest to that. My family loves me, all this stuff. And I think... It's that perspective that I'll say one more time is easier said than done yeah. that I think becomes the foundation uh, to be able to withstand the failures in life. Well, and to use the failures as an opportunity to to test what you're really made of. Yeah. That sounds a little uh, kitschy. It sounds more like yep. a commercial than anything, but I, I really think that's true. I think it's one thing to be happy and joyful in times of plenty mm-hmm. when you're in green pastures. I think, you know, maybe we could call them like desert seasons of like, what am I doing it really does not only show what we're really made of, yep. but also I think shows God's faithfulness and reveals to us like, oh, these are my diehard friends. Yep. This is this is my community. Absolutely. And as painful as those failures and seasons can be, man, I'm grateful that I've gone through them yep. because I look back and say, oh, I survived. Not not alone, not on my yep. own strength, but I still survived. And so looking forward, I know I can survive whatever comes next. Absolutely. And I think that's really, really important for us to keep in the forefront and be reminded of. See, that's what pastors do with basketball games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Well, coming up next, the question that I'm sure is on everyone's mind, and it's this. What does a Kanye West church service look like? I know that we've been championing the bit there to talk about that. Very urgent, very important conversation. (laughs) So coming up next, we're talking about Kanye here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, and everywhere you get your podcast, like, review, share, tweet, snap, post. <laughs> Again, running we're out good. of synonyms. We're good with if you just subscribe and review oh, okay. them. We're just leave, leave it there. They yeah. don't have to snap it or no. Uh, no. tweet it. I don't it. even okay. know what that means. <laughs> We would like you to follow us on Facebook and subscribe and review our podcast. That's, that's all the, we're that's the of extent today. of your social knowledge. Well, maybe maybe text us. Text us something nice. <laughs> How would they do that, Brian? How would six, one eight, text us? 683 in the message, right? CG followed by the the message you have for us, the question, the concern, the comment, the the pun, the joke. <laughs> well then, you the greeting. <laughs> whatever else it You've might be. You've done good. All right, so here's uh here's a headline I want to share with you. We've touched on this topic before, right. but it just gets weirder. Kardashians reveal what happens at Kanye West Sunday service. The Christian event heads to Coachella. The word Christian is in quotes, by the way, just, just to be really clear. <laughs> to be fair. So just to, just to remind everyone, if you weren't actually around for this story, uh, Kanye apparently has been hosting a sort of Sunday service church type of thing. 
And uh, at the time that we talked about it, there was a lot of mystery around it. Like nobody really knew what it was all about or what it was like. Well, it turns out they're they're being a little more uh, a little more open handed with what that experience is like. And apparently, it's it's now going to Coachella. Yeah. What do you think of all this? Well, uh, Chloe Kardashian said this: "It's really uplifting, and you feel excellent." Uh, uh, she shared, noting that all of the Kardashians and their friends attend. We have so many friends who maybe feel a little too judgmental when they go to church. When they come here, they feel so free and safe. It's what everybody says, and you have a great time. It's a beautiful way to start your week. And then Kim Kardashian explained later, there's actually no praying. There's no sermon. There's no word. It's just music. <laughs> and so, you know, music makes us feel good, right? Like I so, get, yeah, Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I I just don't understand, like, linking the word church to this at all. Like, I, if you told me, uh, you know, he's, like, trying to have – a place to uplift people, and they gather, yeah. and they, they enjoy the music and enjoy each other, then okay, cool, man. Go for it. Go for it. But to, this is not a church. And I I think to answer your question, the reason they call it a church is because we're talking about it right now. Mm. If, if he was just hosting uplifting things, nobody would care. I think that's part of some of his quote-unquote genius mm. is that he'll do things like this. And now you and I are in t- we're talking about it for the second time. That's like, a good point. There is something to uh, how you can market something that's a little controversial. Maybe gets under the skin of people. And I, you know, I don't know if it's just a marketing ploy. I, you know, right at the top of the article, it's explaining what it is. It says the services are host by West in an invite only religious event. <laughs> Sorry, just right off the bat, that is a description. That actually does make me a little anxious. Yes, like not you know, anecdotally for me, I don't really. I'm not aligning my moral compass with Kanye's, so it's sort of like, all right, man, do whatever you want. Yep. Like, that's whatever. But phrases like that, an invite-only religious event, uh, are frustrating. I will say this, just because I love to poke the bear. Yep. Some of what I've seen is the outrage, like, oh, you can't have a church service without a sermon. I think back to some of the earliest expressions of church, and the sermon then did not look at all like it yep. does. Now, for a long time in the history of our tradition— the Eucharist was the center of the gathering. So as crazy as that sounds to us, you know, like trying to imagine like somebody inviting you to a church, like, oh, there's no sermon though. Yep. That would obviously sound weird to our sensibilities in the West because unfortunately, and I'm saying this as a preacher, I, I love, pre- I know you do yes, too. Love it. It has unfortunately in a lot of ways kind of become sermon centric. Yeah. It's the yep. main event and anything else is like the opening act to the main event. And Help I hope people I, understand when you say it used to be for generations, it was the message looked totally different. Not to put you in the spot, but what did it look like? Well, not, I, not everyone's had church history classes and they don't, they're kind of probably intrigued by that. I don't even know that it would be okay. called anything like a message. Oh, okay. Uh, and this is again, someone who loves sermon writing and yep. loves sermon preaching uh, in a lot of ways, and again, I'm not saying we need to just copy and paste Acts 2 because I think people evolve and cultures evolve, right. so I'm not even saying that's the goal, but it seemed like the focus a whole lot more was remembering the body and blood, the the sharing of resources, yes. the, the, the cup and the table, the invitation. To me, it seems like, as best I can tell, had a much more prominent role in the weekly gathering or the daily gathering than it does for a lot of Western evangelical context. And it usually didn't involve a jumbotron or a stage or all of these things can be really helpful. I think you're not calling them bad. I'm not knocking any of it. I just think to our sensibilities. And again, (laughs) I feel a little silly linking this to the Kanye story because the Kanye thing is easy to poke fun at, but I'm always really curious as to like, why is it easy to poke fun at and why does it get under our skin? And then maybe flip that 
to look at some of our own predispositions to do things certain ways and assume it's always been that way when mm. it really hasn't. That's a good point. The kernel of in, the thing that's interesting to me in this article is uh, when Khloe Kardashian, and again, I never thought I have a radio show where I'm talking about Khloe Kardashian. It's like, <laughs> this is one of these out of body experiences, right? But when she says we have so many friends who maybe feel a little too judgmental when they go to church, but when they come here, they feel so free and safe. It's a great time in a beautiful way. Your first thing is like, well, oh yeah, church can be too judgmental. But also I think that's a reflection on the, on the people. Hmm. Uh, sometimes I think it's way too easy to just throw out there that the church, big C church is too judgmental. Hmm. Uh, and so therefore the response in a lot of churches has been to no longer discuss sin, no longer discuss, you know, expectation. And, you know, we want to be, uh, you, you, we want to lead with grace and we want to lead with good news, but uh, I would love to hear her flesh that out more or anybody when they're saying, oh, church is too judgmental. I always want to be like, well, what do you mean? Like, what are you feeling judged about and kind of flesh that out a little bit? Because I don't, I don't know. The church is. There's a role within the church that is to call out sin and to um, I'm trying to hesitate from being saying to be judgmental, sure. <laughs> but that's not always the worst thing. I think that's part of the community and the body of Christ. And so to hear her kind of intimate that one thing we're doing this for is to run away from feeling judged. I want to kind of, if I, if I were being able to talk to her, I'd be like, I think that's a little dangerous and let's flesh that out a little bit more. Although I will say just reading some of her responses about the feeling of safety and freedom. Yep. Uh, I, I think that there's probably some stuff we could learn too. Like I, I see church leaders a lot of times do a dance about, you know, we're, we're discerning. We're not being judgmental. We're being yep. discerning, but they do it in a way that actually is pretty condemning and isn't really peppered with a whole lot of grace. And I think, there's a there's a quote by John Wesley who is is I think in a lot of ways pretty universally celebrated. Uh, where, this is what he said. He said, "How far is love, even with many wrong opinions, to be preferred before truth itself without love?" Mm. I think that is convicting because so often Christians, because because we feel as if we're you know we're the keepers of all truth, it justifies behaving however we want. Because like, hey, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just this, just being truthful. I'm just mm-hmm. like even the idea of like, yes, call out sin, but are we doing it with love and grace, or are we saying, hey, this is what we're called to do, so I'm going to call it out, and it doesn't matter how you feel about Correct. it. It's our role. It's our responsibility as Christ followers to do it. And if you don't like it, that's on you. And I think, man, far too often we've justified um, a methodology without thought simply because we we felt justified in what it is that we were doing. Yeah, I would say one thing I feel like you and I have done well in this show is to regularly push people to community, right? And not, I don't mean your church. I mean like <laughs> genuine <laughs> Christian community. Uh, and, and calling out sin is best done on a personal level in community with people who know you and you know them, and they've kind of earned the right to speak into your life. Um, but I do think churches in general, we can, I, I guess what I'm trying to warn against is always this judgmental thing. Uh, oh, and we need to be places of grace. And so we run away from ever having a challenging word uh, about who we're called to be and what we're called to do. Yep. And I think that, that, yes, some churches run too far that direction. Yep. Um, this feels like it's like, well, whatever you want to be, you can be, and we'll all gather together. Um, I want to I, I want to caution against that as yeah. well. Yeah, I think that's a fair caution, man. It's something I'd love to dive into mm-hmm. maybe later in the show or later in the week because I think 
there is a lot of nuance to this conversation, and nope. Kanye is an easy jumping-off point, but I think there's a lot of meat there, too. Well, coming up next, a uh, story out of the Tribune says, Rich kids have all the academic advantages money can buy, but at what cost? This ties in to a story we've been following for a couple of weeks now that I think has a lot of implications, both for us as parents, as pastors, as just people in the community. So that's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, and that's the song that makes our producer dance every single time. One of these days, I'm going to catch it on video. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com, plus the show is podcasted. You can subscribe, you can review, you can rate, you can... Other words that start with an R. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. We're pastors, we love alliteration. If Brian seems distracted, he's uh, watching TV right now. I'm not uh, distracted at all. (laughs) I'm here for you. <laughs> he says that all the time. Not all right. distracted at all. So Chicago Tribune has an article that says, Tutors, private test prep coaches, homework therapists. Rich kids have all the academic advantages money can buy, but at what cost? Yes. Yeah, this is a fascinating article that was in the, uh, in, like you said, in the Chicago Tribune. And it unpacks a, a world that I didn't really know existed. And that is that... Um, there is a lot of money that parents are paying in order for their kids to like get the best tutors. They talk about a place where there's $250 per month membership and it's a called a, a hip hangout with on-demand tutoring. Like it's like when I was a kid, I remember the tutoring only went for like the kids who were really struggling. And now it's like to push you to the next level, oh. uh, this tutoring. And there's like, with it comes this expectation. If your parents are paying a hundred dollars a session for an hour's worth of tutoring, uh, you're expected to be like uh, hugely, you uh, really successful, really smart, going to the best colleges. And so, what this article is premising is that because these people are pouring all of these money, and this is all in light of like that whole bribery scandal, right? That's come uh-huh. out. <laughs> because because these parents are pouring all of this money into their kids' success, their academic success, their uh, their athletic success, all of this stuff, what it's doing is it's causing really stressed out kids. Which is actually not that surprising, no. right? Like it's uh, you know we come through this and we're like, so what's the uh, what's the thesis? What's the outcome? Yep. Oh. Treating our twelve-year-olds like they're business professionals yes. actually does something to like their brain that isn't all that helpful. Which again, um, we're showing some of our bias here. Neither of us have two fifty a month to put toward this anyway, right? So maybe it's a little bit easier for us to criticize when we're like, "Well, this is never going to be our reality." So look at us parenting our kids well by not putting them in tutoring that we could never afford in the first place. You know what I mean? Like I want to at least yep. be mindful of that. That. You know, we've talked about it, especially when we're talking about the bribery scandal, that, of course, we want our kids to have every opportunity and we want to do the best that we can to set them up for success and to resource them. But I don't think that's my highest aim. Is that all no. I'll say? No, like, that's not my highest aim at all. But- I, I want my kids to have compassion. And I want them to see inequities in their own systems and neighborhoods. And it feels like this is uh, a pretty blatant example. And it, in fact, the story even goes on to say, this seems to imply that for working class families that can't afford this type of thing, it's just going to drive the disparity between the yes. two even further, which is not a direction as Christ followers we ever want to see us heading. But it seems like this is kind of part and parcel. It's crazy. This the the psychologist that they talked to in here, 
She says this. She worries that kids are increasingly feeling their worth is defined by their GPA and test scores. Yeah, right. And with with that, she points out to data just published by the American Psychological Association. Listen to this. Showing depression among adolescents between 2005 and 2017. So only a 12-year span here increased by 52%. So we're seeing an escalation of teen anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, self-harm, abuse of prescription drugs, or sleeping aids. Uh, She says, and a common feeling students share with her is this. They say this, on one hand, parents tell them they just want them to be happy and that they're proud of them. On the other hand, they tell them stories about students who attend top tier schools and how they have higher test scores. And so parents are sending these messages, whether implied or, or, or blatant about test scores. But I've told you the number of stories I've already, we've already talked about, about like, uh, about uh, adolescent sports and kids travel leagues yes. and all of the stuff that my world is starting to enter into. Yeah. Right. That parents can like tell their kids, I love you. I'm proud of you. I want you just to be happy, but then send subtle message after subtle message that says my love for you is contingent upon the way you perform yep. academically, your test scores. And now in schools, they're testing a lot more like there you is, you can see as you have kids right now getting older, that there is kind of this cultural stew that I can totally understand that kids are more stressed out and more anxious. And and it becomes um, – the question becomes, are you as an individual parent going to um, get really mm, intentional mm. about not allowing your kid fall into that? Well, okay, so I'm going to try and work this out in real time. It's sort of like the new version of where we used to hear, do as I say, not as I do. Yes. Now it's sort of like – believe as I say, not as I do. Mm. Like what you're outlining is so important that it feels like most of us know to tell our kids we love them. Yes. That's not, it's not groundbreaking, groundbreaking insight from the common good with Brian and Ian. Like yep. it's sort of like, yeah, n- no, duh. What's the takeaway? Tell your kid you love them. What you're trying to poke at though is do your actions actually support that? In fact, that's this counselor's advice at the end of the article. She says, my advice, hug your child mm. and remind them that your love is unconditional. And it goes on to say, while counselors like her plead with parents to provide the kind of support you can't put a price on, there's no sign parents will stop making sure their kids have every academic mm-hmm. advantage their money can buy. So this is kind of, for me, in what I would call like uh, moral gray, yeah. ethically gray territory. It's not a great uh, example, but I've certainly had guys who have asked me, uh, hey, so uh, the Bible doesn't speak to me watching sports all day long. So what, what, is that wrong? Is that wrong mm-hmm. for me to watch sports all day? And I would say, uh, is it causing strife in your marriage? Because mm. the Bible does speak to marriage. So while the Bible doesn't explicitly say, thou shalt only watch three hours of baseball per weekend. Like it doesn't spell <laughs> it out like that. Yeah. There is this ethical gray territory. So yeah, should, should we be investing in our kids? Of course. Yes. Like no duh. However, is it like perpetuating not only this really unhelpful divide, but is it like, is it somehow subtly communicating to our kids? You are only as loved as you are successful? Mm. Is it producing? It seems like it's clear that it is, like a a level of anxiety that is not helpful. Will our kids be anxious anyway? Yeah. There's going to be things in life, in growing up, that are anxiety producing. We can't shield them from all of that. But to say, hey, my my kid's mental health is secondary because I need them into this school when they graduate, to me feels like playing a short game instead of a long one, and that's not helpful. And we all tell our kids they're unconditionally loved, but like you said, is the message that we're subtly sending is, I unconditionally love you, but here are the conditions upon which (laughs) I will love you more. Right, right, right. And 
And we would, again, never say it like that, but no, sometimes actions. our actions, right, they totally and communicate you that. you touched on, and this article touches on, another huge thing about this article and this study is this. Uh, people, a lot of us out there can't afford this. Yeah. And a lot of people out there, they can't afford travel sports for their kids. And they can't. And so education and athletics at some level, but education for the sake of this article is supposed to be the great equalizer. Yeah. But in reality, it's now becoming less and less of that. And it's becoming more of if you have money, you can now provide your kids with a better education because you can give them the tutoring and the outside help or the travel league. So now they can play higher sports, whereas maybe a poor kid can only play park district. Right. And uh, there, the in, the income inequality and divide, I think, is something we really need to take seriously as these things are growing up. Because you would like to think these are born out of love of children. Uh, but I just think <laughs> I, I worry that we're just tipping the scale. And part of this is from articles like this. Part of this is just from my own watching yeah, my right. friends, watching myself, watching the world in which my kids live. And my kids, uh, freshman in high school, fifth grade, fourth grade, live in a categorically different world than I did at yeah. their stages of life. There's totally. always some similarities, but their life is categorically different. And it's really hard to buck against the trend. Yes. And so those are things as Christians and just as good parents we need to wrestle with. And I think what you were alluding to there is that this article is showing that, oh, man, we're seeing now that money can actually give you academic advantages. I think that's always been the case. No I doubt. just think this is an overt example. I think a lot of how redistricting has worked, yeah, it's good. the way the zip codes are developed, there's a lot of systemic stuff that, again, as you and I, like as white middle-class dudes, uh, we're probably a little blind to, to be yeah. honest. And so I think this, in a lot of ways, we say root and fruit stuff. Yeah. I think this is the fruit of a lot of systemic stuff that yeah. maybe we haven't, you and I specifically, haven't had the information to talk about, and I would love to keep talking about this sometime in the it's future. It's just a lot more blatant. Like yeah. you said, a lot more blatant. No kidding. All right, well, coming up next, here's the article. Neuroscientists say the human brain erases unimportant data to make more intelligent decisions. <laughs> I think my brain might be the exception there, but that's <laughs> coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about creating space for dialogue, for conversation, sometimes entering into really tense conversations Mm -hmm. and coming out the other side with uh, sometimes more questions than answers, which uh, I think we're both okay with. We'd love to hear from you, though. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com for previous shows, plus the show is podcasted. And if you find us, subscribe, rate, review. That stuff helps us out a ton. We would really, really appreciate it. And, uh, Brian, I, th- I know that I've mentioned this anecdotally a couple of times. Yep. Uh, I have a terrible memory. Me too. Like, do you really? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember who I'm talking to right now. My name is Josh Winchester. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Yeah, I just, I, and I've joked about it, but there have certainly been times in particular, like when I go home and we're like retelling stories and my brothers will be telling a story that I'm involved in. And yeah. I'm like, I don't remember so you have long-term memory problems. Uh-huh. Yeah, short-term and long-term. Okay. Like, whole experiences where I'm like, was I? Are you sure I was there? And, like, eight people in the room were like, yeah, That's man, you definitely were. Which I kind of would usually laugh off, but sometimes freaks me out a little bit. Because I don't feel like I have long-term memory problems. I can remember, I think as I get older, I tend to forget things, like, in a much more short-term. Like, wait a minute, did we just talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> or like just yeah i i tend to forget things that are more short term and so that's interesting long term and short term yeah it's a little frightening but i you know i'm reading i feel like every 3 days something in my news feed says 
memory loss is a sign that you're a genius. I'm like, <laughs> okay, great. And then the I'm next in. one, the next one's like, if you're late all the time, it means you have a superpowered brain. Yep. And you're like, I feel like. These people are writing this for themselves. <laughs> I, I had the best one of those for me was uh, there was a headline that said or a study recently that came out that said people with higher IQs get annoyed at listening to other people eat. I've and I was like, I'm one. in. <laughs> I'm so smart. I, I must be the smartest guy in the world. <laughs> well, the, this, so this idea of memory is something that I've been uh, fascinated about for a long time. In fact, uh, we had my buddy Casey Tigard in the studio a couple weeks ago, and he just published a new book called As I Recall – discovering the place of memories in our spiritual life. It's, it's brilliant. And it's, it is kind of this linkage of memory and, uh, and how we perceive memories and how it forms us both in the past and present and mm-hmm. future. It's a, it's, a, it's a great book. But we came across another article that talks about um, how the brain erases unimportant data to make room for more important, more intelligent decisions. Yep. And it's, it's really interesting to me because I've never thought about ever the brain's capacity to erase stuff. Yeah, when we think about memory or something that I can't uh, like recall, usually don't we talk about it as something that we just like misplaced? Like when you can't find your keys, you're like, it's here somewhere. I just can't see them right now. I have to right. dig a little bit. Like this article seems to imply like, no, the brain actually intentionally erases certain things to make more space so that the brain can make more intelligent decisions yeah. in the future. Which is really interesting because you think of forgetfulness just like, Ah, you know, I just forget that like it's just something going on. But it is it almost treats this like, a, you know, like a like a hard drive, like it needs more space. And so in order to make good decisions later, it, it needs the room to be able to process. And so it's letting go of things. And I've like you, the brain science is beyond me. You know, it's just kind of yeah. craziness. But the fact that they're linking this kind of. Um, brain science to, or your kind of your brain structure to function this way is just, it's, you know, no pun intended. It's mind blowing yeah. to me. It's just, <laughs> it is a bit crazy because uh, the way God has created us is so much more complex and, and yet at the same time makes so much more sense than I think any of us ever knew yep. uh, that it's just wild. Well, here, here's how the story starts. It says, most people sometimes forget things like dates, birthdays, names of people you've met, and so on. I, I'm certainly in that category. It says, while some people have a more efficient brain and can easily memorize information, others face difficulties to remember it. Yet, according to researchers Paul Franklin and Blake Richards from University of Toronto, these minor brain lapses are completely normal as the old memories in the brain can be overwritten by new ones. This study of memory focuses on remembering and compares neurobiological and computational mechanism mechanisms underlying mm. transients, which I find, like, I, I just didn't know people were even doing this type of research. So their findings suggest that the real purpose of memory is the optimization of decision-making and not the transmission of information. Therefore, transients enhances flexibility by reducing the influence of outdated information on memory-guided decision-making and prevents overfitting to specific past events promoting generalization. Mm. So there's a lot jam-packed there. It really is. But I've never really given thought to memory's role in the optimization uh, optimization of decision-making. How, did, how yeah. does that strike you? Is that new information to you? Or it's just 100% like... new. Like, again, <laughs> I just figured memory is like, uh, you know, a file cabinet in your brain. Like, what's the Disney movie or the Pixar movie where, you know, you just... And, and that every now and then, you know... Some things fly out of that paper, you know, right, they're gone. Right, right. I, I've never given much thought to memory, but uh, it is so interesting. And, and it makes sense the way they're saying this is that 
you know, it is optimizing the ability to make decision making by filtering out the irrelevant details and focusing on things that contribute to intelligent decisions. And so uh, it all makes sense. I've just never thought of it this way. Um, and it makes me feel a little bit better about my forgetfulness. <laughs> well, OK, so I, I, this is this is what I really want to do is is ask, is there spiritual significance to learning this about the brain? Because part of like this article uses the word relevant a whole bunch. Huh. The brain will erase irrelevant information to make space for what is relevant and uh, keeping in mind that we, we are a people who come from a long line of people who have come before us. I'll often use the phrase spiritual amnesia to kind of confess in my own life how I, I, I will easily forget yep. the goodness of God and I, I'll find myself in the same fearful place because I just didn't hold on to this memory. I wonder if there's a correlation between the way that our brains decide on what is erased and some of our difficulty and like continuing to remember God's goodness or God's presence mm. and how how there really is like a need, like a physiological need to work to counteract this forgetfulness. Yeah. Because quote unquote, oh, that memory isn't relevant to right now when actually spiritually it might really be incredibly relevant for us to remember this past event to give us future confidence. Like I, how, how do you see that that correspondence? That's really good. You're you're thinking deeply today. <laughs> it is uh there is a lot in Scripture about remembering and reminding us of yeah, stuff right, to right. be reminded. That was, you know, it's why they told the stories, and it's you know, a lot of when we do communion. I know there's other ways to talk about communion, but a lot of it's talking about to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and to be reminded, probably because of our forgetfulness. Because you're right, you we have, especially in this day and age, we have so many things uh, at our fingertips, so we have so many things to be thinking about. And uh, and trying to process that, yeah, the things that we've always known could go by the wayside. Uh, and so there is a discipline to being reminded. And that's why people, it's always so impressive when people memorize Scripture and they're, they're reminding themselves of these things. I think, I think that's a good biblical principle, the, 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 um, the principle of being reminded, of, of reminding ourselves of the goodness of God and His attributes. In fact, I think that's even one of the characteristics we're given in Scripture of the Holy Spirit, that, mm. that Jesus says, I'm going to send you an advocate yeah. who will remind you of the things I've told you. Like, right in that one short verse is, is we're getting a glimpse of Jesus knowing that we're going to be prone to forget, that mm. our brains will be prone maybe to replace some of this with new information and if part of the actual role of the Holy Spirit is to remind us, I find that weirdly comforting. Like, oh, man, yeah. he knew that we'd be prone to, like, That's lose good. the path and lose the plot a little bit. So the Holy Spirit isn't just there to do these, like, big, grandiose Holy Spirit type things. Sometimes what we need is just a little whisper of, like, hey, don't, don't, don't forget. forget this is really important. It's maybe why yeah. we celebrate anniversaries. It's this reminder, like, hey, it's been, so, it's been some time maybe that you've, like, really cared for each other or looked at each other this way. Like, we build these things into our calendars and yeah. our rhythms as sort of these touch points, like, hey, let's not forget. Life gets crazy. We're going to be prone to doubt and fear and forgetfulness. How can we as a people continue to lean in to remember the good stuff of God, which is, you know, I think kind of what we all want, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And even on some of the more trivial stuff, you and I have joked about how it bothers us that we forget people's names. Uh, we can't remember things about people. Uh, it, it is another reminder that we have to regularly come up with with almost almost cheats of ways to remind ourselves of stuff that might be more trivial in our lives, but that if we don't do that, we're going to become those people uh, uh, who are forgetting people, who are forgetting names, who are forgetting dates and, and things that, that may not be the most pressing things in the world. That's good, man. I, I love this conversation. Coming up next, we're going to take a hard right. Headline reads this, Mike Pompeo thinks it's possible that Trump is a biblical savior. 
We're going to talk about that next coming up on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're left. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, who is, I don't know, dancing is the right word? He's grooving. This feels, uh, this feels somewhat like Moana, Disney. <laughs> what it feels like. It's not where I was going, <laughs> but, but I like your direction better. All right, so let's start with a misleading headline, shall we? We shall. <laughs> it's, from, uh, it's from Vice.com. It says, Mike Pompeo thinks it's possible that Trump is a biblical savior. Which uh, may or may not come as a surprise. That's not really what he said, but uh, it got us to click on it. So I guess it's doing its job. Exactly. We're talking about it now. Um, so here's here's what happened. So we got Mike Pompeo says it's at least a possibility in an appearance Thursday night on a Christian broadcasting network. Could it be that President Trump right now has been sort of raised for such a time as this, just like Queen Esther, to help save the Jewish people from the Iranian menace? Host Chris Mitchell asked Pompeo. His response was, as a Christian, I certainly believe that's possible. I am confident that the Lord is at work here, he mm-hmm. added. So not quite the same as the headline reads. However, I still think an interesting talking point and something that we have at least alluded to uh, in the past. I'd yeah. love to know maybe specifically about this interview, but then more broadly about our our posture as Christ followers as it pertains to leaders and not just political leaders. How do you navigate some of the mess there? Yeah, I think that anytime—here's a warning sign for me. Anytime we take our political leaders and we say, hey, aren't they a great leader like— and then we insert biblical leader. Sure. <laughs> that's, where it gets, like, that's where his question went off the rails for me, right? Okay. Could it be a, President Trump has been raised up uh, for such a time as this just like Queen Esther? And then— so now you've got to get into the Queen Esther story and understand what that looked like and all this stuff. I just— think it's dangerous because you and I've said this multiple times, right? We already have a savior. <laughs> we're not, we're not looking to elect the savior. We're looking to have leaders who will enact uh, good laws and um, keep the peace and whatever else. So, and this happens on both sides of the aisle. You remember when Barack Obama was being elected and there was, there was Messiah talk about him from the extremes, not from most people, but from the extremes. And on the other side of the aisle, you know, there was like he is the furthest thing from that. And now President Trump comes up and there you hear Messiah language being used. Uh, and also you start hearing the verses used that I just think are are actually true, but just used as weapons. Like, well, we're supposed to we're supposed to support and pray for our leaders. Hundred percent. Do you do that when you don't like when it's not the leader you have voted for? <laughs> And are you going to take that same posture? If that answer is yes, then I have a great, uh, I, I have a great amount of respect for you because you're doing what you're biblically called to. But when we take our leaders and we say, you know what, this guy has or girl has been raised up by God for such a time as this, the danger of that is you you can't then disagree with that leader and you can't hold that leader accountable and realize that that leader is a fallen person who could make bad decisions when we as a democracy are called to, you know, hold our leaders accountable and push our leaders. And so to elevate them to this kind of mythical spiritual status, I think that's where this gets really dangerous. And he was, 
you know, Pompeo here was he was getting to that line, but I think the the host was really trying to push him over that line. Yeah. Uh, and so I'd really want to ask the host, like, what were you trying to get at there? And a lot of this <laughs> has to do with Israel and this and that. And again, um, I, 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 I have strong feelings about like the whole uh, Israeli-Palestinian thing. I, I spent time over in Israel and this and that, but I do think that a lot of people who talk about it don't really know what they're talking about and just kind of throw out stuff and and it all becomes about talking points, and then we biblicize everything, and it just gets really dangerous. And so my, my caution out there would be for people, like, maybe let's not talk about our political leaders in Messiah terms, regardless, <laughs> and in Savior terms. We have a Savior, and maybe let's make sure that's where our worship lies while still supporting and praying for our leaders and realizing that they have hard jobs and they need our prayer and they need our support, but they also need our accountability. That that's how democracy works. And we got to make sure that we get those two things right. Okay, so let me broaden it then a little bit Please. to uh, talk about a phrase that I feel like it's tossed around a lot, particularly in this conversation, mm-hmm. and that's of God's providence or God's sovereignty, which are two different things. And I don't, I don't think we need to differentiate here right now. But uh, does God's providence equal God's approval? Mm. My my example would be in talking about political leaders, however we speak of them, um, is can God still be sovereign while disapproving of the decisions of individuals, being you and mm-hmm. me, or leaders of systems and nations? And do we have any? Is there a, is there a case that we can make for God both being sovereign and us having the capacity to make terrible choices? Us being humans. And does that discredit, does that dismantle in our minds theologically God's sovereignty, or or is there a real tension there to navigate? Can God both be sovereign and uh, our leaders at any capacity still make terrible decisions? And that's a big one right there. I, I think <laughs> yeah, the, four minutes we have left, why not? The, the answer's got to be yes, right? That God, We believe in God's sovereignty, uh, that, God, that God is... Uh, not surprised by what's going on. Like, right, God's not up there going, whoa, what just happened down there, yeah, right? Right. Um, but that not everything that we do as fallen humans is being, um, is in line with God's will and in line with who God has called us to be. Like, we have terror, we have history, we have history of God uh, still working in and through awful situations and awful people who are doing terrible things, Right. I, I don't want to say that God raised up Hitler for such a time as that, or you I'm know, glad you don't want to say exactly. That. <laughs> but but that, I think that becomes the extreme case to answer your question: is uh, is God still involved and sovereign in that situation? Yeah, God didn't like remove Himself and be like, "Hey, I'm going to take off the 1930s, 40s here." Um, okay, so maybe an obvious question then is: in what way was He involved? Yeah, I'm going to put that one on you. No, you you're keep... the one who said it. I didn't say it. No, I would say that God, I think that God is still present and active, right? Like, I think that, you know, as, as I'm just shooting off the top of my head here, I'm, I'm thinking as people are going through that and, and they're, you know, let's say they're praying, I don't, I don't think God's up there going, nope, I'm, I'm, I've tapped out of this one, right? right? I think God is still active and working in and through people's lives. I just, I just want to be careful to say that not every leader who's raised up is God ordained and he's going and like, they're doing God's work at all times, every every decision. I don't. I just don't think that's how it works. Right. Okay. And you and you did mention that Hitler is an extreme example, but I yep. have to believe that thousands upon thousands of people were on their hands and knees praying, "God, yep. would you stop this?" And it would appear that for a long time he didn't. Correct. So how do you justify? How do you reconcile that reality with the declaration that God is always sovereign, always providential, and always present? Yeah. I. 
I would say that uh, this is part of, and and you're in the host seat. You're just, you're lobbing the questions today. I would say that um, this gets back to like when we all did explore God and we did how can a good God allow evil in the right. world? And we talk about well, this world is broken, and we talk all always about that you know theological phrase of the already not yet that we're dealing with the brokenness of sin in this world. We have not yet realized the full redemption of what's to come. Um, but that God is still living and active and at work in our time now, and that we're kind of in that already not yet. And that's where I would go with this question, that God is still at work. You know, Hitler was was as that is a sinful, broken, dark uh, period of of life. Yeah. And we see that scripturally through the years. We see that we see governments now. We Our government right. acts that way at times. Our government is not perfect. But we've got to believe that God is still present and living and active and at work in and through his people, in and through the church, to still advance his kingdom in the midst of broken institutions and broken governments and broken people uh, who may be acting in such a way or doing things that are even warring against the advancement of God's kingdom. Well, and it's not a a perfect connection, but we talked a little earlier about this idea of redemption. Mm -hmm. And I think rather than seeing God as some sort of like divine puppet master in the sky, it seems like he's a whole lot more in the business of redeeming that which was broken and dark. So for me, it's like it is a tension. Like, is God sovereign? Yes. Do we make decisions in the course of human events? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are there consequences for our actions? Yes. Does God's sovereignty give us license to keep on sinning? No, absolutely right. not. And I think Paul addressed this pretty bluntly in Romans. Is the grace of God intended for us to just keep on sinning? Of course not. Right. right? So for me, to kind of boil it all down, to say that God is individually appointing whoever sits in the White House— Yep. I think is a is a real dangerous misreading of sovereignty and providence, mm-hmm. and for us sometimes I think the end result of that is a sort of like hands back. Like I guess I don't have to do anything because ultimately God's in control and I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. I don't think we see that in, anywhere in Scripture Agreed. that God's invitation is, "Hey, just uh, just lounge back. I'll take it from here." It's yep. always this like mutual participatory. Hey, do you see brokenness in the world? Like work to solve it. You, you see pain in the world, like get closer to it, like bring healing and hope. You're the conduits of grace and mercy in the world. So when, when we say, God, why aren't you changing this in the world? I wonder if sometimes God isn't looking back at us and saying, that's your job. Yeah. That's part of what I've enabled you to do in the world. And I think that's, that's a convicting clash. It's good, man. Not exactly where I anticipated this conversation going, but uh, I think a really, really important one for us to continue to wrestle with. Absolutely. Well, this has been the common good with Ian Simpkins and Brian Fromm on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a, uh, a show about diving into the mess, the tense. And this is going to be, I think, exactly one of those conversations. But first, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. Plus, we're podcasted. More and more people are telling us that we're listening at twice the speed. Get it which done. The, yeah, the subtext get is it we, done. We, we're, realize, try, we're trying to get through your show as fast as possible. And do you realize I just started talking and my mic wasn't even anywhere near me? <laughs> So people heard that Brian from across the room go, get I'm like, it down. I'm like, no. <laughs> that was funny. You yeah, do a no, whole segment that way. People are podcasting, and as we've been saying, we would love for you to subscribe. And also, it really helps us if you review. Um, and so if you not only subscribe, but you leave a review. And uh, that I don't even know how that's helpful, but the metrics of it 
uh, it kind of puts it out in front of people. The more people who review, so it becomes helpful. At what point are we annoying for saying this as often as we Man, do? I listened to a podcast the other day. Uh, it's annoying. I, I forget who it was. And this person was talking about it all the time. I oh, was somebody like, else's oh. podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, no, oh. somebody else's podcast. They just kept banging home like the, <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, maybe so we, we don't talk got, about We haven't it. gotten there yet. No, then? what's the old thing? Like until people are really annoyed by it, then you don't know that you you haven't done it enough until people are like, please stop. Yeah. Oh. That's, a, that's, that's an awful saying. It's Andy Stanley. It's Andy Stanley, <laughs> right? I'm entitled to a disagree with him every once in a while. You are not. You are not. You need to become unhinged from your... Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> Here sorry. we go. Okay, That was so inside yeah. baseball right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Anyone else listening is like, are these guys okay? Should I call somebody? All right, so here's, here's an article you found. You, you love the Gospel Coalition. And the headline, do. <laughs> you go to Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, and... I would say uh, I respect the Gospel Coalition. And Fashionista. Those, fashionista. Are, your, those are your three go-tos. Uh, the headline, though, is really interesting. And uh, before we go any further, I do just need to say <laughs> I am not qualified to have the conversation we're about to have, just to be really clear. The headline, though, says, Jordan Peterson, High Priest for a Secular Age. Mm. So... Uh, I don't even know if everyone listening has heard of Jordan Peterson. It's probably worth, if like you're podcasting, hit pause, do a quick Google search, because he seems to be on a lot of people's minds right now, both for and against. Yeah. And even just anecdotally, I'm always interested in like, oh, man, a whole bunch of people are talking about this guy and not everybody agrees with him. That's interesting to me. I want to learn more. Uh, but the Gospel Coalition takes a, a pretty unique kind of angle on this whole phenomenon right now of, of his uh, appeal and fame and uh, so let's let's get into it i mean he has more than two million followers on youtube right. more than a million followers on twitter and his most well-known book is called 12 rules for life it has sold approximately three million copies in less than a year and the book tour listen to this is reaching stadium crowds of up to a hundred thousand people that's for a book tour uh and so like yeah. you said he's a bit of a phenomenon that only a couple years ago he was completely unknown. Uh, he's a clinical psychologist who people say has a unique ability to respond to a certain set of conditions inherent to our, sec- our, uh, our secular age. And so people are going, uh, he, he is tapping into something, right? There is, this, there is this feel that the world around us is chaotic, and he's particularly tapping into kind of millennials and baby boomers, people who are feeling like, man, the world is kind of crazy and chaotic, and, and he's coming in, and what what he seems to be tapping into is an ability to help people navigate and understand the secular age. And you were talking about earlier that another thing people will enjoy about him is he's a pretty straight talker, right? Like, it's not like, oh, we all have to love each other. And he's like, nope, this is the truth. I'm going at it. And, you know, that sort of thing, um, it, that resonates with some people. It resonates with people in politics, resonates with people... Uh, with the books that they read. And so what the article tries to do is to map out what is, first of all, the secular age that we're living in that he's speaking into. Um, and it's it, 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 the, the article says that we're not secular in the sense that, that our most Westerners are avowed atheist or, agno- or agnostic or, or that people are hiding their religious beliefs. It says instead it's secular in the sense that Christianity has not only been displaced from the de- default position, but it's also now contested by myriad religions, ideologies, and quote-unquote takes on life, attempts to force the facts of life through one restricted notion. And so he, the article is saying, and, and Jordan Peterson saying, that we're in a secular age, not in that like we're all going to be martyred for our faith, but that yeah. it's a little more marginalized. And so he has stepped into that and, that, and the Gospel Coalition is trying to say what's his appeal. And the first thing they said his appeal is, is that his works are, are helping bring order to chaos. And I think that's the big one is that people 
feel like life is just chaotic around us and that that there's kind of this um, nebulousness around us. And, and Peterson is coming in and saying, no, this is how things are and trying to bring order to chaos. And so, um, yeah, it's very interesting. Do you feel that need in your life or in the people around? Do you sense that the people are feeling like the world is chaotic and I, I wish there was greater order? Yeah, so there's a there's a couple ways I'd respond to that. I do feel the chaos, and I do yep. feel that a lot of people also feel like there's chaos, and there is, I think, sometimes a a uh, hyper intrigue with order because you know behind order is control, and I you know mm. I do sometimes wonder if we crave order too much. You know, like we we talked about this a couple months ago. This uh, illustration that Jesus is Jesus uses of a, of a mustard seed. You know, often we sort of just talk about like, oh, small things can do big things. But like mm-hmm. in in Jewish law and code, you know, you were you were forbidden to plant a mustard seed because it was wild. It would like take over. And so there's some good scholarly work to suggest part of the kingdom of God actually is a little unruly. It doesn't look like a nicely mowed, fertilized suburban lawn. Sometimes I think our obsession with guys like Peterson is because oh, he speaks straight. He's he's bringing order to chaos. And I sometimes wonder if like yeah, maybe a little chaos actually is necessary. Mm. Maybe that's what teaches us like dependence and faith. And that's, you know, politics aside, that's even religious conviction aside. And and, and again, I'm not usually this guy, but it, it does need to be said that as best I can tell, he he's not a Christ follower. So he's right. he's suggesting some good principles, some good maybe moral concepts. But at the end of the day, I think it mess, misses the mark uh, in some pretty significant ways. In fact, this particular article goes on to say that Peterson wants us to live as if there is a God because he understands well the disastrous consequences uh, of living as if there is not a God. Right. But what good is the recovery of transcendence if it is only an evolutionarily useful figment of imagination? Mm. As a high priest of traditional Western values, Peterson's temple is no less empty than the secularists against whom he prophesies. That's powerful. That's powerful. It's a re- it really is, and a little surprising for me. I did not think they were going to take that tack. And uh, I just think there's a lot of meat there, something to wrestle with. Like, okay, one, why, why, do, why are we so obsessed with order? Two, uh, why this massive appeal for um, a guy, you know, for such a time as this? Mm-hmm. And three, why, you know, why are Christians flocking yes. uh, to him? Yep. Because I have a number of friends who have posted about him, and the defense back and forth is, you know, has gotten pretty heated. And I'm, I'm always curious about the humanity behind the thing. Like, okay, why is he? Good and bad. Why is he stirring stuff up? And uh, I think there's, I just think there's a lot there. Yeah, he, he, the article writes for Christians, therefore, the encouragement we should f- gain from Peterson's meteoric rise is that it proves the real felt need for order, meaning, and morality in a secular age. Uh, the Peterson success is evidence that our neighbors are recognizing the malaise of our secular age and are, it seems, are willing to try living as if God exists. That's one of Peterson's big deals. Live as if God exists. But this article is going to say this. Uh, if Christ hasn't really risen, then our as if is futile. That's what we talk about at Easter, right? Like Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus has not risen from the dead, if all of this isn't true, then no, then none of this matters. It's all futile. And that's ultimately the point of this article. It says it's one thing for Peterson to say live as if as if God is real and Jesus is true. And we as Christians need to say, no, live that live knowing full well that Jesus died, uh, rose again, and that all of this is true. And that's ultimately where order and um, in the midst of a chaotic world, and that's where moral, morality and all these things come. And that's ultimately the point of this article that that, you know, Peterson can be in their terminology, the high priest. Uh, for a secular age, 
up to a point, but that ultimately Jesus is the answer to these kind of things that, that Peterson is speaking into. And as Christians, we cannot lose sight of this. We can't just go, well, let's pretend that Jesus lived and died and rose again, and, and it will help us live more moral lives here. That's not ultimately the point. The only answer to the chaos of sin and secularism and everything is Jesus. Uh, and that's why this article says Peterson can only get us so far. Uh, but his writings are going to be lacking, and we need to be willing to take that next step and realize that Jesus is the ultimate answer. Well, and and I, you know, that to me is um, it's easier to say it can only get us so far. Mm-hmm. I, I, and this is maybe a conversation for another time. I'd love to know if we should even let him get us that far because mm-hmm. it does feel like sometimes there is, based on the trends of culture, a hyper obsession with what looks different or opposite. Mm-hmm. So if everything feels chaotic and we feel like no one's shooting us straight. The first person with some notoriety that shoots us straight, we then like hitch our wagon to that person. Like, ah, he's telling it like it is. Like, a valid well, point. Yeah, but what if he's like a total jerk in the process? Does that matter? <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not speaking to him specifically. I'm just saying we do sometimes hyper glorify straight talk, and then I think lose some of our capacity to scrutinize the actual content because the delivery appeals to us. And you know, I, I know that people listening on all sides of the aisle here that. Hey, maybe we need some more straight talk. Maybe we've been too easily offended, and I think that's certainly part of it. But I, I do want to think deeply about, okay, is there some truth here? Sure. Mm-hmm. Can I take some truth from uh, a, a U2 song? Absolutely. That doesn't yep. mean they have to be theologians. Correct. doesn't mean they have to get us all the way there. Um, for me, it's always it's always about gleaning. It's about saying, all right, what, what can I, how can I grow? And then uh, what can I discard entirely? I think, what, that, I think that's a great point, and I do think that that's helpful because— you're right. A lot of times we glam on or, or grab on to the next big thing, uh, and uh, that's hard. That that That's dangerous because that could lead us in a direction away from Scripture. And I, I think that's ultimately the point. As we wrestle with secularism and other things, we need to know that our hope is found in Jesus and um, and ultimately be rooted in that. And that's where we're going to find any stability in the midst of the chaos of this world. Yeah, that's good. All right, well, coming up next, the church built a uh, basketball court in their sanctuary, and uh, in light of previous stories, I would love to get Brian's reaction uh, to not only the idea, but the expenditures and all the stuff tied up with that. So we're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But here is a story that was sent to us, I won't mention the name, someone involved in some capacity. <laughs> someone, someone, someone very close to our hearts. Someone close to our hearts, and this role specifically. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's essentially about a church building uh, a full-court basketball court uh, in their sanctuary yes. as a part of a, a sermon series, a part of a, an illustration, also kind of linking it to, yeah, March Madness in the current sort of state of our culture. And... Um, I saw, I saw the pastor tweet like a time lapse video of them building it, and then sharing that on Twitter. And then the response, I think, was not yeah. at all what he was expecting. In fact, uh, the vast majority of people seemed p- pretty appalled by yep. it. Before getting to the response, oh, the gosh. actual mechanism of building a basketball court on the stage was pretty impressive. <laughs> so we know where Brian Fromm stands. I've got, I've got thoughts on actual the actual content of it, but just the the mechanics of building a basketball court. 
was you had to tip your cap to it a little bit. We learned yesterday that if Brian found $14,000 cash, he would tell nobody and keep it for himself. That is so, true. If I find $14, if I find $1,400, $14,000. So you guys statement. are connecting the dots here. He keeps money that's not his, and he's pro-basketball court I in the could, sanctuary. I so let's wa- just end the segment here. I could watch you it You heard it here out. first, folks. I could watch the, the $14 fall out of your pocket. <laughs> wow. I feel like I need to call somebody from your church just to keep an eye on you. I can watch it fall right out of now, your pocket. You right, say, finders keepers. Right now, I want to say, I'm just being sarcastic. I'm joking. Part of me is like, yeah, maybe not. Uh, yeah, I don't know that you are. <laughs> All right. So I, have you seen the video of the actual? Uh, okay. So what do you think? What's your general gut reaction? And then let's drill down deeper into Pastor Brian's thoughts and maybe just human Brian's thoughts. So besides the the kind of like, wow, that's pretty Interest, like that's pretty impressive how they actually built this thing. It it does play into a lot that that troubles me about the uh, the state of the church. Like this is uh, this is Ed Young's church down in Dallas, and what they are doing is they are unapologetically trying to almost push every extreme possible to reach as many people as possible. The purpose for them is let us. Uh, reach, uh, let us do whatever we can to reach as many people as we can. And we've heard that, right? There's some there's some Andy Stanley in that, some Craig Grishelle. We'll do anything possible to reach as many people as possible. I think Grishelle says anything short of sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Ed Young, my point is, is not out there on his own. Um, but it really turned the Sunday service, if you will, and I'm going to sound maybe old or maybe not old here, but it really turned it into quite the spectacle. Like if you watched it, it was like it was like cheerleaders and dancers and basketball, and it was it was in many ways a stadium experience, which I think is what they were going for. Yeah, it was. Uh, if if we're gonna be uh, if we're gonna try to reach as many people and get them into the building as possible, let's just blow this thing out. And so, blow this thing out in March Madness meant literally building a basketball court and literally having in like a halftime show what you would see at a basketball game. And we're firing t-shirt cannons out and we got cheerleaders <laughs> and it, it was just, um, it was, it was, a it was just a crazy show. Right. And so it, like you said, drilling down, the question becomes, uh, what do we feel about a church doing this? Uh, on a Sunday morning, and and uh, I'm going to throw that back at you. That's what I'm going to I'm going to ride this back at you. But b- besides it being a spectacle, uh, whether you find it grotesque or impressive, uh, what do you think about this in general uh, state of the church and this being you know where we've gotten to for some with the Sunday morning experience? Yeah. Okay. So uh, first off, I don't know that it matters what I think. To be honest, like about conversations like these, uh, you and I have microphones in front of our faces. That's so why it matters. A certain extent, I don't know that it, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that just because there are microphones in front of our face, it matters what we think mm-hmm. about a church building a court in their auditorium. I'm learning, I'm learning more and more that I think, okay, so we we it is so easy for us to become preoccupied with how every other church is doing it. Yes, and the things we disagree about it, and that's not right. And I I don't know. I'm just noticing that trend in myself, even with the preacher sneakers thing like i can have a very visceral reaction to it and think is that any of my business why should i care i go back and forth on that though we talked yesterday about which hills we die on and all that um i do like i you know my my introduction to this was a a time-lapse video that he posted of them building it and uh you're you're right there is part of it's like wow that's pretty that's pretty impressive (laughs) and then you go to the comments though and it's like holy cow wow there's a lot 
uh, going on here of people that seem to be pretty upset uh, with typically it comes down to money. Yep. It's not, it's not usually like a conceptual disagreement, you know, like it's for a series called the championship life. I almost have more issues with that title yep. 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 <laughs> than the actual almost not totally, but almost. So there's a couple of people, particularly those that are part of his church that are saying things like, I don't think you guys realize though, how many people that this actually brought to our church for the first time mm-hmm. that maybe experienced and encountered Jesus for the first time. And, uh, in fact, we saw in, in this th- this thread, uh, a friend of ours had uh, retweeted this, and someone said, you know what, that might actually get me to go to church. And the response was, well, then you're going to church for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And and even that is nuanced to me, because we've talked about this before as youth pastors. I I uh, felt no regret for offering free pizza at events if it meant yep. getting a kid in the door. Yep. Do I hope that the only thing he gets out of it is Little Caesars? Of course not. But... I'm, it's I, I'm not above using pizza to get a 16 year old to at least man if he just gets a whisper of the gospel that plants a seed that 10 years on the road actually becomes something I'm for it and I think that maybe that's some of the argument that people are making like oh this is just sort of modern day pizza for adults we build this <laughs> court to get people in uh, but I also like anecdotally if the goal is evangelism, and I and I do really appreciate, I have a, a number of really impassioned quote unquote evangelists in my life, who just are they're so focused on reaching the lost, they're an inspiration to me. Yep. Um, I wonder if if that's the goal. What if you just took the money that you spent on that and send five dollar bills to people that aren't a part of your church yep. and say, hey, join us on Sunday? Like that almost would be as effective and you for say me. That you say that jokingly. I have a buddy who helped start a church in California. That's exactly what they did. They sent actual money. They walked around and said, "We would love for you to join us. Here's five bucks, <laughs> and we even if you don't come, you can keep this. It's our gift to you." Wow. That's literally what they did. So what you say raises a great question. You bring up a lot of great points about this. And I would ask this question. Uh, man, I've got a lot of things going around in my mind. But I would say the longer I'm a pastor, man, I really want your opinion on this. Uh, I don't think evangelism's the goal uh, oh. of church. I don't think evangelism's the goal of Sunday morning. And this is coming from someone who started a church wanting to reach a community, right? Yeah, right. And um, I I think that the longer I'm at this, the more that I want to have in mind that there are people there who maybe have never been there. And I want to be really sensitive to that. I want them to feel welcomed. I want them to feel loved. I want them to feel like they're not watching from the outside. But ultimately, the goal for me for Sunday morning is less about how can I get as many people in this door to hear this. But instead, uh, how can we be, uh, you know equipping our people um, to go out and live, know what it means to follow Jesus and live their lives and go out. And maybe if they bring people with them, great. Um, and, and I know that's a little nuance and it's something I think I'm still forming. Cause for me, it's so, you know, a lot of us who were raised as pastors in the world of Willow and stuff like that, it's like, no, the goal of Sunday morning, get as many people in so we could talk to them and share the gospel and go out. And that's good. I think it's something I'm wrestling with. Huh. So you don't have a conclusion then you're, you're saying both and I am. See, I am, because I, I think I'm moving. I think it, for me, it was how can we get more people in here? And I think I'm drift. I think I'm moving a little bit, but I'm not sure where that moving is going to end. <laughs> See, and I, and I, this is maybe an unpopular opinion, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle too. But I, I do think that some of what Jesus did was attractional. Agreed. When, anytime we read, and the crowds gathered. Yeah, there wasn't. Okay, so what do you call that? Yeah, attraction. Like yep. people were. Now, as his ministry progresses, the crowds get smaller and smaller because right. he says tougher and tougher things. 
I just, anytime anyone says, I, I think the church is this and not this, I think, okay, either way, on e- even if I agree with you, that feels like a flattening unnecessarily. Agreed. Oh, it's not attractional. It's got to be only formational. Like, why can't it can't be, be both? both right. I guess, I guess for me, the question increasingly becomes, what is it that we're trying to attract people to? Like, what's the, what's the attractional methodology? Here it's, you know, t-shirt cannons and cheerleaders, which, again, I think you break up a good point. Like, hey, don't throw stones if you're... <laughs> Just because they're doing it bigger and 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 right. crazier doesn't mean you're still not doing it, right? Um, and I guess I, I'm giving some thought to what what is it that we are attracting them to? What is what is our attractional framework? Is it kind of bells and whistles, and then we'll slip in the gospel, or is it something else? And I, I think I'd be interested to know what people think about that because I think as a pastor, you know, I'm 41 years old, been at this for a while. I still think it's still something I'm still wrestling with and trying to figure out what's the role. I know what the role of Sunday morning is, but also what is what does it mean to want uh, want people who don't know the gospel to hear the gospel? How is that best done, and how you know how do you bring that about? And I hope that it's something that we continue to wrestle through because yep. like one of the things that we try to be mindful of is that I don't just say uh, the Book of John says we say John, one of Jesus's closest friends, correct? Because we want to be mindful of the person who's never been to church, never heard these stories. And I think it is conceivable to see Sunday morning as an opportunity to invite someone who's never heard any of this. And then ultimately the goal for us, at least in our language, is for them to then be moved into a small group context. And that's where like the formation discipleship, that's where that's really happening. Yep. And I know plenty of people disagree with that model. And I think that's fine. Yep. I think it's totally okay. Now, again, that doesn't really get at the issue of a basketball court. Do we think uh, that's a good use of funds or resources? Is that even for us to determine uh, I think both of us are are sort of saying our knee jerk is like ah that may have been a bit yep. much. Um, and do good motives always justify expenditures of any dollar amount? I don't right. know that they do, but I think we do have a responsibility as the big C church to hold each other accountable in that regard, and uh, and ultimately to hopefully always have at least at some sense. Uh, a hope for the lost, and yes. maybe not even, I don't even know that I love that phrasing, but to to reach people who are far from God mm-hmm. uh, means that we sometimes have to be thinking outside the four walls of our building, yep. and that can be really, really hard to do. Absolutely. All right, so another day of some pretty heavy topics, but we like to land the plane. Land it. Uh, just with some insanity that we found online. Not that we found, that our producers found. We'll read sight unseen, so if we giggle through the whole thing, you'll have to forgive us. That's coming up next <laughs> on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. <laughs> I think that's my favorite intro to a segment. Absolutely. We should just begin every segment, I think, with that. <laughs> some version of that, <laughs> based on the story we're telling. <laughs> this is The Common Good with Ian and Brian. Ian Simpkins, Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. And a disclaimer that I do feel the need to give every single time as we wrap up the show, we're going to share some insanity that our producers found online. We have not read these stories. We have not heard the sound clips. If they're inappropriate... We, we're we're absolving ourselves. I think uh, yep. as pastors, are we allowed to do that? That's what we're doing. Okay, just to be clear. Just punting. Just before you're punting all responsibility and blame. Brian, why don't you kick us off? From Michigan, officer accused of showing up drunk for breathalyzer training. That's okay. Not, that's not great. An officer with the Detroit police is at the center of an internal investigation after allegedly showing up for training under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> Just call in sick. What are you doing? The incident in one of the officers is accused of being intoxicated 
at a Michigan State police training in Lansing. The bottom line is he showed up to work under the influence of alcohol. Newsflash, you can't drink and then come to work. You're not airline pilots. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, it's like funny but also sad and probably... I'm going to use that in a sermon. Yep. I'm not going to lie. That's All coming. Right. Another Michigan. This feels directed at me. All Michigan. Uh, Michigan man's jackpot ticket spent a night in the trash. Whoa. Whoa. That's worded weirdly. A Michigan man rescued a lottery ticket from the trash and discovered it was worth $25,000 a year for life. Wow. What? See, this is like the thing that I always, this is why I always pick up uh, lottery tickets that I find on the floor like somebody misread it, but apparently this really happened. Yeah. Jeff. Heinig of Harrison told Michigan lottery officials his lucky for life ticket ended up in the garbage because he incorrectly thought it was worthless. Oh, he threw it out. Oh, oh okay. I bought a lucky for life ticket last Wednesday and then checked it on the lottery's website Thursday morning. I didn't match any of the numbers on the site, so I threw my ticket away. He didn't realize the mistake the next day. I was back on the website Friday and the lucky for life numbers caught my eye. <laughs> the numbers that I always play and it turns out $25,000 a year for life. Wow. How many lottery tickets have you bought in your life? Many, perhaps hundreds. And how many times have you won? (laughs) Never, but this time is truly different. I have never heard of anything so ridiculous. That's so weird. Out of England, hunt for men in Audi who threw a cupcake at a driver's window. For shame. Police are hunting for two men in an Audi who forced a driver to mount the pavement in a fit of road rage, including throwing of a cupcake. Shocking footage shows the pair driving in an A1 breaking violently across the dual carriageway and then throwing a water bottle at the pickup truck. The driver of the pickup, who was with his girlfriend at the time, claims the attackers then threw a pink cupcake at his driver's side window during the ordeal, they continue to look for the suspect. Hey, a cupcake. <laughs> what are the odds of that one? I felt like you read that one with a, a, like a renewed sense it of was, intensity. I was ready to go on that one. Pennsylvania, flight attendant returns library book left on plane. That does not sound exciting. Nope. A Spirit Airlines flight attendant who found a middle school library book left behind on a plane mailed it back to the Pennsylvania school. Springton Middle School Principal Robert Saladino said the Medina, nope, said the media school received a package this week from Spirit Airlines flight attendant who found the book after the flight. Ah, oh, it's just a sweet story. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your stewardess speaking. We regret any inconvenience the sudden cabin movement might have caused. This is due to periodic air pockets we encountered. There's no reason to become alarmed, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? <laughs> I did not Keith, see that Keith coming. Keith loves to pull out the airplane. He one. really does. All right, last one. Washington, D.C. Three-year-old locks parents out of iPad for 25,536,442 minutes. <laughs> I, I, this is my life right a now. A <laughs> man in Washington, D.C. was locked out of his iPad for more than 25 million minutes or 48 years after his three-year-old tried to use it. Evan Osnos, a writer of the New York Magazine, shared an image on social media Saturday showing the screen of his locked-out tablet. iPad is disabled, it read. Try again in 25,536,442 minutes. And it goes through all these people trying to give him ideas. And uh, I don't think any of them are going to (laughs) work. The combination is one. 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 Two. 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 Three. 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 Four. 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 Five. 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 <laughs> so the combination is one, two, three, four, five. That's the stupidest combination I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> the kind of thing an idiot would have on his luggage. Where's the cake? It works, sir. We have the combination. Great. What's the comb
One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Yes. That's amazing. I've got the same combination on my luggage. <laughs> that was a long one. I feel like these clips get longer and longer. <laughs> That's probably just good good advice for life. If you feel like you're on your device too much, just give it to your toddler. <laughs> you're sure to be locked out of it for the rest of your life. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> That's well, never a dull moment here on The Common Good with Ian and Brian on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.